Previously on Napcast. I can't even imagine what folks who are who are um, in the in the working class realm, black people in the working class realm, have to go through and what they have to negotiate and grapple with um, when they have to make big choices about what is best for them and their families. Um, I think about folks uh, from the Mississippi Delta who have to like up in their lives because of um, environmental devastation from hurricanes or oil spills or um, migrant workers um, on the West Coast who have to leave because they're tired of choking on smoke (laughs) from wildfire season. As a Black woman, um, every every place in America will represent uh, a corner of hell or um, a place of intense um, discomfort and lack of safety. Um, And honestly, it's very unfortunate um, that in this country, um, we have to think about not what space is free, but (laughs) what space can we deal with? (laughs) So Sierra, what are some of the things you've seen through your career that have been barriers to the growth of organizations around their anti-racism work? Well, one thing I would say is that I think that people do know. Mm. They do know and they are uncomfortable with grappling with the reality that they know. Mm. And because there is discomfort of acknowledging what they know, there is no... um, sense of being compelled to act. When initiatives are created as a reaction Uh um, and not um, as... Proactive in the fight against racism. Yes, and not as a form of care work, um, you really miss out on the why (laughs) of of what you are doing. Uh, And then it becomes like putting out fires. Uh-huh. Um, that you start <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness! <laughs> then it becomes like a game of whack-a-mole, um, and you just spend your time um, putting band-aids. Uh, I love so on Twitter. There's this um, photo that always pops up when people are talking about syst- when politicians are talking about systemic. Um, inequities mm-hmm. and they talk about their solutions and folks critique these solutions because they're so surface-based with this photo of someone putting a bandage <laughs> like a crack on a sidewalk <laughs> and I've seen other variations of folks putting like a band-aid in the middle of a pothole <laughs> and going aha um, that yes we fixed it um, and sometimes I think that um, because folks are not thinking about the big picture and and why things got to the way that they are, um, you end up with these piecemeal solutions that, or in quote solutions Mm -hmm. that don't really lead to anything. I think um, it's people have to dig deep. um, And that means having really uncomfortable I don't want to say conversations because you are having conversations all the time. I think we need to figure out how to have those conversations more effectively, mm-hmm. um, which is why I think facilitation is so important. Um, just because you have a, a big heart and you're compassionate doesn't necessarily mean that um, you're equipped to facilitate. That voice, that knowledge, that wisdom you just heard was a small little snippet of part one of our episode, Black Woman Wisdom, led by Sierra, director of DEI at the Birchie School. And in that first episode, we discussed ways we can institutionalize our anti-racism work. If you haven't heard it, go back, learn something new, listen as she drops knowledge and wisdom on how white supremacy lives and ways we can combat it and ways we can be liberated 
from it. In this episode, she returns for part two of two, discussing what is it like being a black woman in white spaces? How we can take these social movements and turn it into actual change? And what does our institutions, organizations need to do first before engaging with communities of color? All right, y'all. So everyone knows that child care is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine-tune your skills and grow more in-depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCasts are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, (laughs) heck, even agree with us, but honestly remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. Right. So we're both the equity leads at both of our institutions. And both of our institutions is is no secret that we simply just don't have the, uh, a proportionate amount of children's families and staff that reflects us in our cultures. And I love asking this question because when we always ask these questions to white people, how would you like to achieve, you know, anti-racism or racial equity in our schools and your work? They often retort, you know, oh, we want to serve more families of color. But we know that by doing so right now would just be tokenizing and harmful. There really needs to be a shift at not just our institutions, but all institutions, if you really want to engage in this work, right? But there, there needs to be the shift at all of our institutions first before we engage with communities of color. Now, I've really tried explaining this multiple times um, in person, via the NAPCast, in emails, etc. But it, it sometimes falls to the wayside. So I'm going to give you a chance to explain it for us. What is this shift that I keep talking about? Because it it really can't just be about writing a check for a scholarship fund, even though I definitely will take that check. Um, Our Nick Taronis scholarship is still up. You can visit that at www.hilltopcc.com backslash Nick. Had to throw that out there. But it's also really a mental shift that needs to happen as well. So what must organizations like ours do first in order to to create this foundation, create this atmosphere that makes it... um, not safe, but safer, because as someone told me yesterday, aka you, safe is a relative term. So how do we make it safer, more welcoming, um, and an affirmative place for BIPOC staff first, then BIPOC children, then low-income children, you know, children with ACEs and trauma, and and really across the board? Hmm. That's a good question. I think everyone wants diversity these days (laughs) everybody wants it it's the the flavor of the month Mm -hmm. um (laughs) i um i have this um when i think about the way that people process social justice in the united states i envision it as waiting in line at the dmv like or any like government led office with paperwork you know pick your number and wait a minute so i guess it's our turn <laughs> <laughs> so i guess it's it's our time right now um and so people are like flocking to come get us and uh, get get the black families and the black kids um and of course you know not um, you know, they don't assume that they're doing it in malintent, um, but it becomes malintent when you bring folks to a space um, and you promise things to families and children and they decide to enter this space and they are underwhelmed or in shock or hurt because 
what they are seeing and experiencing is not what was communicated and advertised to them. Mm. And so I think before people even do outreach, again, research is so important. Research and and making action is so important um, because um, you you have to make sure that your space in the beginning (laughs) is a a welcoming, culturally responsive place. And this um, this isn't like we're searching for the fountain of youth here. There are plenty of experts. There's plenty of knowledge out there uh, Mm -hmm. for folks to research and and to work to be better at this. Um, And I also think, too, that people see that work. Um, So these families are not dumb. Um, They can tell when they're getting lied to, Mm -hmm. when the the smoke and mirrors come up. They can tell if this space is really going to hold their whole child. Um, And I think that if people do the work from the beginning, that will attract um, diversity, folks of color, um, students with ACEs, um, students of lower socioeconomic backgrounds, because they will realize and experience, and maybe even if you're really doing your work and you're out there in the community and the community gives you an endorsement, Mm. um, I hear from word of mouth. Because if you're doing the work, it will show. Um, and so no matter how many people like you go out and recruit, um, if you're not modeling <laughs> your mission and your values, um, people are going to notice. And so I think that the, the one question that folks need to um, use um, when assessing um, their, in, their environments, their school environments, is when people enter our space, do they feel like they have to check a part of themselves at the door to be with us? Mm. And also, when people enter our space, do they feel like the space loves them? Mm. Like, families and children have to believe that they can see themselves in the space. And if they can't do that, the partnership between the families and the school is not going to be successful. And not just, you know, putting a a welcome sign in uh, 13 different languages or anything like that, or, or putting up children uh, or putting up a photo of, I don't know, Barack Obama. (laughs) I hear you. So, and it has to go past, um, quantitative because I think and also there's this really um, interesting um, article out there in the universe I think it's called like the the tenets of white supremacist culture Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's an article um, that was adapted by showing up for racial justice it's like a white allies group Um, and one of the um, and actually, if people did not do those things in that article, that would be a very great right <laughs> forward. Um, but one of the um, tenets of white supremacist culture is focusing on the quantitative over the qualitative. Um, so when people are thinking about how to make their environments more welcoming, they do have those, um, (laughs) those, um, photos of, of the heroes and, um, well, the, the same, like five heroes and and also like, um, edit their stories, um, to the fact, to the point where they lose their potency. And they do have those welcome signs in 13 languages. Uh, that's something that you can check off a list. Mm. It becomes qualitative when, I don't know, you actually have students and families in your community that you've developed a relationship with that are ambassadors to the school because they love the school so much and they want to share their experience. Um, Or the students themselves self-determining to make their own mural and welcome sign because they have a love for the school and they're taking ownership of it. Um, And so I I could see on an assessment somewhere, um, creating a welcoming community, someone might say, 
oh, this, we need to have visual examples of diversity in our classroom in the halls. Um, it becomes <laughs> quantitative when you just buy some random sign. It becomes qualitative when the community has actually decided to buy in um, to what is going on. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just taking that extra notch above what you're doing um, to make sure um, that it's honest and authentic and it, it's coming from um, the folks within your community. Um, and if it's not, if you don't have that voice, let's think about why um, and do the, the research and um, bring those stories in in a meaningful way um, so that we are engaging. Um, I, I think that, Folks, also the sense of urgency is also a tenet of white supremacy. I think that folks um, create um, this, they always go to the quantitative um, because they are, they just want to hurry up and do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, as it's, a tied, it's tied into funding, right? It's tied into to all these different things. It's tied into looking good in the community. Mm -hmm. As opposed to acknowledging, hey, we, we've got work to do. We need to take some time to do it well. And when we, when we figure out our flow and stride um, and we figure out the, the way that we want this partnership to work uh, and families also tell us what they want, um, then we will start to model how we envision our, our values and, and and our expectations for community members. Um, but with urgency, you just, again, you just check things off and not really think them through. And I would even take that a step further around values, right? Because I, I firmly believe a conversation about values needs to extend beyond just your internal uh, staff, right? If you're really looking to engage a community in which you don't have historical good standings within, you need to be able to have that transparency and extend beyond who actually works there and engage the community and have that wider conversation around the intersection of education and equity. If you're really looking to create a long-term um, with emphasis on long-term, because this is a journey, right? You won't wake up tomorrow and be like, yeah, I'm going to pour thousands of dollars in this marketing campaign in this community, in this specific zip code, in order to attract a certain population, but really work to create a long-term outreach plan to build those um, uh, relationships and connections with these communities. Right. It's really important. Um to have a public purpose um, mm. in what we do, and especially being in private institutions. I think that sometimes we rely on uh, we serve our families, um, which is very real, mm. um, but <laughs> these institutions receive the power that they have because of legacy, because of our legacies and relationships to capitalism, to whiteness, and um, because of those things, we have accumulated a lot of wealth and a lot of cultural capital and power. And we would not be um, doing justice to the work that we do if we don't think about um, the ways in which we engage outside of our wall mm. um, and also um, how we redistribute our resources and wealth. Um, because in a way, um, we are inextricably linked to um, the disenfranchisement and um, oppression of others um, by nature of the histories of some of our schools and institutions even. Um, like we were created to be exclusive, um, yeah. keep people out and thrived because of those things. Um, and we need to acknowledge those histories and um, do some repair work for sure.
being elite does not mean being inclusive. Right, so I feel like if I had a nickel or dime, let's go a quarter, because I'm trying to make money. But if I had a quarter, every time I heard a white person say, I want to listen more, man, I, I'd, I'd have enough money to purchase, what, Seattle Mariners. Uh, not sure why I would actually want to own them. They couldn't even win against a high school team. I know I'm making enemies, but I figured if I haven't lost you know, a couple of listeners just then, um, you know, and you keep listening, let's let's keep it real let's keep it real about race identity culture in and so much more stuff and i feel like this is a revolving door something catastrophic happens that stirs this nation or whatever a city or a school district or wherever your community is is located and that you're listening in right now and we all jump on the Black Lives Matter movement or the indigenous sovereignty movement or whatever that it is in that moment. And then it quickly dies down. And I'm going to steal the words of the only president I acknowledge, at least in 2020, <laughs> President Obama, right? And I'm going to turn it into a question for you. Mm -hmm. So how can we make this moment the the turning point for real authentic change mm -hmm. and just what recommend recommendations do you have for for bipoc people in this movement and then for white educators in this movement wow. so i was having this very um oh intense conversation um with my father um about the the recent presidential election and also the the resurgence or, or the current wave um i don't know how to quantify it or, or label it um of the black lives matter movement and it was i think it's also important especially for seattle listeners to realize that the the world outside of this bubble of Seattle, things are going down differently. Mm. Um, Flint still don't got water. North Carolina don't got water. Go ahead, my bad. <laughs> um, and I, my dad um, was discussing how, and he's a gun owner, about how some neighbors um, approached him because they knew that he was a gun owner. Mm. and asked if he could be a part and he's 67 years old um and he's taking care of my brother who has cerebral palsy so like i consider they i'm glad that they think that they are tough and buff and big um but i i see them as vulnerable and um and they're living alone in a neighborhood that is facing um resource decline and also is um, being threatened by gentrification mm -hmm. um, and he was telling me about how he was approached on the eve of the election about being a part of a block watch in case um violence were to happen because it is ohio um, and of course i love ohio but then there are some truths that ohio still needs to process mm -hmm. um and my dad was telling me about how someone tried to set um, a ballot return box on fire and that it would things were really getting intense and um, energy like that doesn't just fade away um into the night um so I know that here um, in Seattle, a lot of people were relieved um, mm. and stomping on Cheetos and dancing in the streets and whatever they wanted to do, you know, do you, uh, like, we're not here to police anyone's um, way of celebrating it, uh, this, this change in administration. Um, but it made me think how, about how much of a huge juxtaposition that is, where my dad is asked to patrol um, his own neighborhood. Right. Um, and we have folks out here freely, like, buying food and stepping on it with no <laughs> intention of, <laughs> of uh, I don't, I, I don't know. 
such excess. Mm. Um, and at the end of our conversation, my dad said, well, it just seemed like the conversation kind of started and stopped. And he's seen a lot in his life. And he was, uh, my grandparents marched with um, Reverend Dr. MLK mm. and some other leaders, Abernathy. Um, I have um, family that have gotten to meet John Smith. Um, no, no, not John Lewis, sorry. Okay, I was like, who? I was going to say, you might have just lost your black card right there. <laughs> John Lewis, oh my goodness, I don't even know if, like, Grant Bart, um, who've gotten to meet um, Congressman John Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, people who've been here for a minute and have seen things. Um, and my dad said something that was, ooh, just hit me in my gut. And he said, If this pandemic didn't happen, it'd still be business as usual. Mm-hmm. And he said it, it is nature's <laughs> fault why this happened because we had no choice but to look. But mm-hmm. people weren't looking because they wanted to look. Mm. Um, and so I. Woo, that, that hit because as a young person, um, this is our, I guess, our time to participate in the ongoing movement for liberation. And I, I was totally like buying into the hype that like, yes, like people are saying that this is the biggest attendance that they've ever seen. And like people are getting engaged like never before. People are buying all the books. Um, and of course, like a part of me knew like that would come to an end as it always does. Because when we were, when I was in college, um, I think we were in, we were both in college around the same time um, that the Black Lives Matter movement really uh, began to originate and like uh, with um, Trayvon Martin and his murder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was in 2011 or 2012. I think it was a time what is time anymore yeah, I don't know. Time, but, but it, it sounds around that time yeah and i um i remember that you know these are conversations that we've always had in private um that we were now bringing to the public and you, i definitely felt more empowered to be very open and critical um of my white peers and of the system um but then it, it petered down um, and then over the summer, it just kind of just like exploded. Um, but then I heard what my dad was saying, and someone who's been who's been through it himself, um, and realized that oh, I don't know how much progress we did make. Um, are people really reading all these books? Mm. Um, it kind of seems like we did enough to end the specially programmed nightmare to return to the regular daily nightmare. Uh Um, And that makes me feel like we have so much to do and we didn't even put a dent um, into anything. Um, because we're, I don't know if we're doing enough to main, if the conversations are being maintained to take people to the next level. Um, and I'm worried that we're going to run into a wall again, where as soon as the vaccine comes, as soon as the, the new presidential administration um, begins to um, cement itself and get inaugurated and blah, 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 blah. start working, um, <laughs> I, I think that a lot of the status quo is going to return. Um, and so I would, my advice for BIPOC educators is to take care of yourselves and each other. Um, I think that therapy um, is so critical. Mental health support is so critical. Um, whatever that looks like to you, um, 
get it. And I also think that there are um, supports in Seattle to make mental health care affordable and accessible. And there are also so many resources virtually um, that BIPOC communities are offering to, um, I know that in my Twitter circle, we've got um, black mental health practitioners offering discounted or um, free um, mental health support to people. Um, I think it's just about like, talking to your networks or communicating with your networks rather about like what you need um, and us working together to support each other. Um, resting, um, eating food that nourishes you, staying hydrated, all the basics to just take care of yourself. Um, vitamin D, mm. happy lights, exercising, stretching, um, talking to your family, um, and also communicating what your needs are to yes. the people that you love um, so that we can get through this because we will need the stamina. And also when you can't um, carry the weight, make that known too, because I think that it's important that we know like, okay, we need to let this brother or sister um, uh, or non, non-binary um, folk in our, in our community um, rest and then we carry that load um, for them. And then when it, we're done, we can have other folks continue. Um, I think that's important too, that we like redistribute the work amongst each other. Um, I also think um, for white educators, and I think, and I've said it, um, and it makes me wonder like, what can be said to reach white educators? Um, because I think so many people have said it, people have died for it. Uh. Um, people have said it as they've died. Um, at this point, I'm at a loss for what to say. Uh. Um, I think that our white, our aspiring white allies are saying that they're listening, but I don't think there's an awareness of how to listen. Uh. You listen you don't just nod your head and acknowledge and say that you're listening and then move on to the next thing in your life. Um, because I think if folks were listening, um, they would know that in order to advance this work um, and to be in the cause uh, with us, that there are things that they have to let go. Uh. Um, so, you have to let go of the privilege that you benefit from. You have to let go of the need for civility when you're telling your aunt or uncle or whoever um, about themselves um, or calling them in rather um, when they're saying something or um, a white person you don't know, but you're proximate to. Uh Um, that also means that you will lose uh, status of being, I don't know, chill or cool um, or palatable because you're bringing up these conversations. That also means that you, you give up speaking time. Um, you might give up some of your financial and economic resources. Um, in all the ways I'm thinking of white people actively listening, that means that they're giving up something, including their time. Mm. Um, one of the common um, complaints, and I know that people will say feedback, but no, they're legit complaints uh, about engaging in this work is that I don't have the time. I have a family. Mm-hmm. I've got competing priorities. It would be lovely to do, but can we do it like on our schedule? Mm. Um, if any BIPOC person were to say those things, think about how they would be perceived in their workplace or in any space. Mm. Um, <laughs> if we were to say, you know, you know, I can't code switch <laughs> because my job ends at 3.30. Mm. Or, you know what? 
I, I'm not going to change my hair because I, I don't have the time, um, or no, no officer. I am not going to comply because I'm busy. <laughs> um, in no scenario as a BIPOC person can we say the same things um, and, I don't know, get out unscathed. That's true. Um, and we sacrifice a lot just to survive, um, just to um, be in this country. We're always figuring out um, how to navigate, um, even if it's at cost to us, our health, our lives. Um, and so the least, the very least um, white educators can do is spend the time. And sometimes when they talk about time, it's not even, it's not like they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> As coming from Baptist origins, like I had to do yeah, that. I, in there. I get it. <laughs> it's, it's not like they're wandering in the desert. It's, it's sometimes it's, it's as succinct as an hour after school mm. or a couple hours a weekend. And I, it sucks. It sucks. No one wants to say past work. <laughs> no one wants to do anything on the weekends. We're not acknowledge. We, we are not saying that, Oh, this is going to like, <laughs> It's going to be the greatest experience yeah. ever. <laughs> Nothing about dismantling racism <laughs> or, or discussing ways to dismantle oppression against any identity is a wonderful time. Like it's not a, a carnival cruise. It's, it's intensive work for a reason. Um, and so, and also I think um, that hour you spend to learn how to be a better ally has such a, a huge return on investment. Like I, um, in Pittsburgh, um, I, I was having a conversation with um, a colleague about um, policing and what they can do if they see a black person being stopped by the police. And I made some recommendations um, and they spent that hour with me after work to talk about it. Wow. And then lo and behold, because it's the US, um, they encountered a black person being stopped by the police and they followed um, the, the training that I, that I suggested and they were able to be a support to that person so it's not like the things that we are saying and, and the trainings that we are recommending or the books that we are recommending and writing um are just there uh to be pretty um they're there to actually enhance knowledge and skill sets um and so and i also think when i think about it an hour out of a life it's a drop in the bucket yeah, it's a drop in the bucket it's it's not much. Um, and then it's, we will, yeah, that's, that's all I've got to say. Is <laughs> do the work, do the work. There, it, as Kamala said in a, um, a speech um, months ago, there is no vaccine for racism. Mm. Um, it's, there is no easy bake um, recipe to dismantling racism. Um, it it's a hundreds of the hundreds of years in the making. Um, it it is the smog <laughs> that that we're all breathing in. It is a crime scene. It is a very tangled web, and Yes, you can march with us, and we we need so much more. Um, just do the work, do the work, um, Sister Sierra, and, and also get used to um, 
being wrong too, because it's clear that, you know, if we all knew the way to eliminate racism, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So you're going to mess up. Yep. But then, I don't know, the, the, the consequences of a white person messing up are still far lower <laughs> than when a black person messes up. Yeah. Or, and not even mess up, but just exist. Because yeah. um, I don't want to say mess up. Um, but because they didn't follow the code, the rules. Um, so I just, yeah, I, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Sierra. I appreciate the wisdom, the, the love and support you gave all of us today. And um, I can't wait to have you back, back on Napcast one day. Yeah, likewise. I, I hope this was helpful. And um, it was a pleasure being here and speaking with you. And um, Napcasters, I, um, I hope this was that's provided some learning moments uh, for you. And um, yeah, I look forward to speaking with you again. All right now. Thank you so much. Oh yes, uh, you're welcome. We'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high quality preschool after school program and professional development institute of early learning and inquiry serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. Wow, that was... That was insightful. That was wisdom. That was knowledge. That was skills. That was just, that was truly amazing. And I, I still can't, I still can't stop thinking about just what she said. Every, every corner of America is hell for a Black woman. Whew, that's heavy. Mm-hmm. So what, what were your thoughts, Nick? Well, at the end of it, and at the end of it, I thought, well, yeah, Mike, have you ever gone to a cookout or a potluck or a, a pachanga? Where no, I'm black. We do that every, every Sunday. <laughs> so, so when you go and, mm-hmm. and, you, and you might bring a dish mm. and when you walk into the space where all the food's at and you realize you didn't need to bring a dish because someone else already laid out the feast. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know your your yours isn't going to make an impact either way. Mm-hmm. So that's how I felt after hearing the food of thought that y'all laid out. Mm. You guys made a huge feast, and I I think I um I I don't want I don't have anything to say because I think you know you all said it perfectly and and beautifully, and I also took it as a practice of like you know maybe it's it's this is an opportunity for me to actively give a black woman the space to just have her voice out there right and not not try to do any more or anything less i guess um for what she said and but you know i think one thing that did cross my mind was since it is a big feast of food of thought <laughs> and, and, and I think some, some folks might have a hard time knowing how to portion out their uh, digestion of it. I think what I you know, if you don't mind, I guess the way I distilled it down is, you know, I, I like that you brought up the idea of uh, pedagogy of Liberty. And, and I think if that's our pinnacle of like something that we want to be uh, um, education's version of actualization, of having this pedagogy of liberty. I think before you get there, you need to have a liberty of self. And that is something that, um, that Sierra, Sierra, right? Yep. Uh, That's something that she was bringing up and that you guys talked about, uh, I think right in the middle about, you know, this, the healing of self. And, you know, I think this is an idea in reference to, to a moral and spiritual cleansing and healing that needs to happen within each individual. 
But before you get there, mm. it comes back to that thing I've been saying all the time, confession. You know, being anti-racist means being able to confess your own racist upbringing. And I sort, you know, if people are like, well, how do I confess? How do I do that? I'm taking strength and uh, inspiration from from folks and, and family members that I know that have gone through Alcoholics Anonymous. And let's use that language and say, for example, hi, my name is Nick and I'm a racist. <laughs> and I have been socialized into racist thinking and have participated in white supremacy culture. I must examine my past, acknowledge and unlearn or dismantle most of what I know and feel. And then maybe someone can just say, and I'm imagining people just looking in the mirror and saying this every morning, just start that practice. You know, we talk about peeling back the onion and this is one of those first, that first, that thin layer of membrane, that skin, right? Let's get that off by just looking in the mirror or looking on your phone and, and just saying that, saying I am a racist and I've been socialized and I have participated most of the time unconsciously, right? Um, in white supremacy culture. And I think the more that we just call it out, then the more we'll be able to identify um, the, the how we're participating in white supremacy culture and, and we'll be able to take more actionable steps. And then I think it, individuals will be able to distill it down for themselves. Um, and then, you know, I think it's important to call out, you know, your, some of your first racist memories. Um, you know, I think for mine, I, I remember vividly um, this, this one kid when I was growing up in L.A., this black kid named Quentin. And for some reason, we just didn't get along and we would call each other racial slurs, you know, and just so um, just so matter of factly. Or I think I told you the story and it's in in my book, you know, of when we would play blacks versus cops you know, on the playground as a tag game. You know, if you got tagged, then you were you were you were you were a black, and you had to go down on both knees and put hands behind your back. Yeah. And you know, and then other other people had to come tag you, and and then you would be free. And you know that those were when I look at it now, I know that that was just racist upbringing and thinking. And so, you know, I think if we want to get to this pinnacle of pedagogy of liberty, then we got to get that liberty of self. But before liberty of self, we got to confess our own racist things. And even if you don't think it's racist, just assume that it is and, and just say it, you know, like, and just get comfortable. And that's what I'm saying to people like do it in the mirror or on the phone, just so you get comfortable doing it and then find a community of people who want to also do that. And, and I know, and I, you know, I know like Amir and yourself have talked about like, man, why do I have to be the black person? That's like, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the sort of social justice, Dr. Phil or something, you know, um, but it's different when, you know, it's different when I get paid for it. That's, that's right. 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 <laughs> but I, I mean, what do you think of the fact of like, you know, encouraging people to, 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 to try to unpack race, uh, unpack their own racism with their black friends or, or their black and brown friends? I mean, what do you... Where's my stance on that? Yeah. I, you know, absolutely. You know, hit them up, call them up. And also, if that's the first time you're talking to me in, in six months, if that's the first time <laughs> you hit me up in, in a million ways, right? If this is awesome. If you don't engage in a personal inventory, a personal journey yourself, Right. With the with the calling, you know, looking in the mirror and calling yourself out. Um, yes. And also taking action and accountability, reading black scholarship, reading brown scholarship. Also. Right. I don't want to render those who are Pacific Islanders and those who are South Asian, you know, invisible. So also making sure that you're getting a bevy of different, you know, still talking about the how race implicates different people's lives, different voices of color. Um, live. So making sure that you're picking that up. Once again, love Robin D'Angelo, worked with her a couple of times, but also white fragility. Come on, we've been saying that same thing for, for millions of years. Um, so 
so that's that's where I kind of sit in terms of hitting me up and and asking me questions and, and walking through this process because I feel like I have to because so many times my life is going to depend on your ability to speak up. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and I and wonder if people get, especially white folks, I wonder if they, it, it just becomes so overwhelming that it's, it's easier to not take action or to, to wait to be directed towards action. Hmm. Um, and so I appreciate you saying like, you know, look at the full spectrum of the of the human di- uh, human experience, and and you know, look at how race has played out in each of these, uh, each of the peoples that you've called out: Pacific Islanders, Southeast Asian, um, you know, Latin Americans, and 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 then you'll start realizing how how colonized this world is, right? And how um, the the white narrative is predominant because of that, and so. But really, I think, you know, before you get there, you got to first, like, I think that first step is confession. I mean, that's just my opinion, but it just seems like a good, like, (laughs) quote, unquote, easy uh, stepping first step to just like name it. Mm -hmm. You know, you also mentioned something about giving, giving space to black femme identifying people. And um, I just... I'm always thinking about what what is my role as a male in being a visible ally, you know, co-conspirator with Black women, Black feminine-fine individuals, because that is my, you know, that's an intrinsic part of the Black liberation struggle, of the the voices of color liberation struggle. Um, so that, those are always things that I'm thinking of. Like, yes, I'm calling on my white, you know, white counterparts to be an ally for me, but also how am I turning that lens within myself and saying, okay, I have so much privilege being a male. How do I not just say it or tweet about it? Yeah. What are the concrete steps that I can take? Um, to, to support, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think with a lot of these, a lot of these words and conversations that we have, I think, yeah, you know, people, people need to just keep, keep diving into it and, and, and hearing it from different perspectives and different voices, but it's, but importantly from black women and, uh, or black uh, identifying women. And one that I came across after listening to it, interestingly enough, uh, I was just scrolling through Instagram and um, I think I told you about Rhapsody that, that or, or you know Rhapsody, yeah, yeah. So she had on her page, she had the this vignette of Lauren Hill talking about this stuff. So I would encourage everybody to, you know, go look up some um, Lauren Hill quotes on, um, on identity. And, and and being a black woman and it was very it it was striking it was so it was so striking to me how parallel the conversation you had with Sierra and with what Lauren Hill was saying um so yeah I would you know encourage everybody to go look at that or, and just kind of you know build up your build up your repertoire of anti-racist um perspective and but first start off by admitting that you're racist because to be anti-racist you have to admit that you are racist. And I guess just some discussion questions that, you know, that I would like to leave with people. It's just, how can non-Black feminists, right, begin to understand the experience of Black women and Black femme-identifying individuals? How, you know, what is our view on political blackness? How can we be taking this as a global approach, right? Because being black in America is so much different than being Afro-Caribbean like I identify, which is so much different from being black and Latinx, right? How can we embody feminism 
in order to create that bridge. And then how do we talk to white people about intersectionality? So I can't take credit for, for those discussion questions. I had the two minutes before we jumped on this call, <laughs> before we recorded that to actually look that up. But I do wanna you know, make sure that we are, we are having these brave conversations and questioning our roles uh, on race and feminism. All right. So there we have it, Black Woman Wisdom. As always, feel free to reach out, hit us up. What are your questions? What are your thoughts? We got a, a email from a student in California who listened to our NAPCAST uh, as part of a project and gave us a lot of great things as well as pushback. And was like, ah, you know, growing up as someone who's low income, I don't see it like that. And I, I'm so appreciative of that. I don't know about you, Nick. I know the answer, but. <laughs> well, man, you know, what it was, it, it was I, what I really appreciated it was that to me, I think our, our goal is to get people thinking and to sell and beginning their journey of self-reflection. Right. And, and what they called out in terms of the low income and nice clothes to the comment I made to a generalized comment that I made, and I'm not being defensive, but what, that's exactly the point, though, is that we're conditioned that material consumerism is a value. Mm. We teach that to children. And when low-income people or people from low-income situations have to buy into that as a source of value and worth, well, that's the whole symptomatic problem that we're talking about. You know, there, it's, it's a whole big thing. And, um, you know, and I, and I think, though, we get caught up in that consumerism and that's a whole other thing and and i think sierra talked about was it sierra or maybe i heard it some because i went down another rabbit hole just listening to black women but it was this idea of capitalism right and how cap capitalism promotes consumerism and and in that it promotes um a value in materialistic objects that i think get us away from that actualization of self-liberty and i think that people in low-income situations are easier to be succumbed to that. And, and that's the whole general thing. Yes, it, you know, in the ideal world, we would all have nice things and we would all have pride in them, but that's not the reality. And so, you know, yeah, it's, um, but, so, but their pushback and their questioning of my comment was, it, it, to me, I was like, yeah, that's, that's the point. It's like, it's this whole big thing that, that then frames our, our own thinking and narrative of like, for somebody in the, I mean, I didn't grow up, uh, I didn't grow up in a low income, but I didn't grow up in like, that was like in between that low income and middle class, mm -hmm. you know, like we're like in the nineties of where it's like, I think what was that working, what was that working poor? Something like maybe, that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we were, we were definitely, well, better off than some of my family members, but yet couldn't afford certain things. Like I, we, I couldn't afford to bring a lunchable to school. You know, yeah. <laughs> I wish I. That was like I always wanted to bring lunch to school, but we couldn't. We couldn't afford it, mm -hmm. um, and so I had you know pay. I had to pay the dollar or whatever for for lunch, or I think I had lunch assistance, but. Um. But yeah, it's a uh, you know. So I I do know what they the comment of like, you know, cause I had, I had my white Reeboks that I didn't want to get dirty. I had my favorite, like cool Looney Tunes shirt that I didn't, you know, that I valued a lot, but, but again, yeah, I think it's their comment and pushback is, is commentary on the overall big problem. Um, so yeah, but that was, yeah, I really loved hearing from, from them and it was a lengthy response too. It was really cool. I felt good listening to that. Yeah. But she, I, I believe it was she, or maybe she, they, um, that's how they identify. But I, I just remember like reading that and feeling, oh, you know what? They do got a point. They really do got a point. Cause I remember being so embarrassed about my clothes and, and how that, 
and how just <laughs> horrible children are sometimes. They're so mean. Um, and how that was a source of pride because I, I was in and out of poverty. And it, it really conjured so many different types of emotions. And I thought, yeah, you know what? I am an emotional dude. And so is Nick. So I think maybe that's where we should go with our next um, Madcast. Let's, let's talk about building children's emotional vocabulary and what we can do to help them develop their, their emotions. What do you think? Yeah, you know, that's a great idea, Mike. Um, I mean, we all need that. We all need some emotional literacy. Uh, and, 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 you know, and I think that better equips us to, to shed our emotional armor that we build up. And again, I think when we have an emotional literacy, then we can speak to what we're feeling, what we're seeing. And again, that gives us a little bit of momentum to move forward, just kind of like with what I was saying earlier with the uh, anti-racism and confessing it of being racist. Yeah, that's a great idea. All right. So hang tight. Let's let's get emotional, y'all. I'm Nick Taronis. I'm Mike Brown. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Here. <laughs>